If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to longtime NFL writer Don Banks, king of snap judgments, about his passion for vintage baseball cards. And we will also break down the new fantasy folktale novel, The Hike, by Deadspin writer Drew McGarry. We will also slam some hammers, give you some distractions, and so much more. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Joining me across the table in the studio tonight, a fresh-faced sports media strategist and cultural daywalker, no, it's man, Mr. Adam Willard. That was Adam. like a one-time thing only. It's been in two episodes of the podcast. I like it. Keep it forever. Okay. Uh, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. You're super ex- I hear you're super excited about your new nicknames. No, but I am super excited about the best UFC card maybe in the history of UFC. Was that the one that just happened? Yep. UFC 202. McGregor Diaz 2. As you guys know from our text exchange, I didn't expect it to go down like that. For it to go five rounds and McGregor to pull it out. It's great. Can't wait for number three. So also with us in studio, our producer, Joe. Joe, I know you texted Adam to watch the fights together. How'd that go? Uh, I ended up watching it uh, at home. <laughs> I, I, I feel Adam no blew you will. off. I very feel no ill will. When you're exchange. in the neighborhood, you got you to gotta see if you can come over. And uh, you couldn't, couldn't make it happen. That's all good, Man. baby. It was my place just wasn't I don't want you look up to me in a way that I really appreciate. <laughs> and had you seen my place that night, I just can't couldn't have stand to disappoint you. like. And that. that's all right. We'll we'll get him on 203. I like I was reading that chain from the suburbs and legit felt bad. I was like, poor Joe. Adam, Adam's <laughs> like excuses. My my stuff's not picked up. My, no, <laughs> my place on. was a disaster. It's kind of like. Weekend Adam does not give a shit. It's kind of gross. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, well, then I'm glad. I'll give you more warning next time. I texted yeah. him the day of, I think. So Had I, you told me Thursday, I would have just had the cleaning lady come through, and we would have been set. UFC 278 by then to be all straight exactly. up. Joe, all I'll up. say this publicly. 203, which will feature CM Punk's UFC debut, Whoa. we will watch together. All right. Excellent. All right, also on the phone, laughing mysteriously in the background, it is our Emmy-winning sports producer in our Brooklyn bureau, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, what's new in the Big Apple? You know, Adam, you just said something about the cleaning lady coming. That's It's funny. That's one of the better fights I've ever had with my wife was when I came home from work one day as a television producer in sports, as you said, Brad. She was like, oh, I cleaned up everything except... The tub, could you clean out the bathtub? And I just said, you know what? No, we're going to pay somebody else to do it. And we got into a large fight about how we spend money and is that worth spending money on and things like that. And I just said, babe, don't care. Uh, I'm done cleaning bathtubs. So, yeah, cleaning lady is a great or man or whatever. What a great quality of life edition it is the it's the best money i spend 
to come home on yep. a Friday and be like, I don't have to think about doing anything this weekend. And I would have had her come through it. I know Joe Reed wanted to watch the fight together. I Garrett, just assumed you were out doing millennial things. I, I was. I was out eating sushi downtown Chicago. It was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no one older than 26 does that. Also, <laughs> am I sitting at a table of one percenters? Dear God, man. You guys got cleaning crews coming through Bro, your house? Fifty dollars. I know you're right. There's like yeah. It's like I was gonna say of... that is a that is an affordable luxury there, man. <laughs> Straight cash, hey, Joe. On. I had to get rid of mine when we started paying you for this damn podcast. Hey, <laughs> that's why I don't have Netflix either. Hey, I'll, uh, I'll start sweeping. Yeah. Well, anyway, on this show, we don't just send emails to invite people on. We do it in a way that entertains you, the beautiful and unique Sparkle Ponies who listen to Just Not Sports week in week out. We call this invitation process slamming the hammer. Adam, start us off this week. Who do you want to slam the hammer to in the sports world? Uh, I'd like to, I'll make this quick. I'd like to go uh, slam the hammer to Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, As you know, there is a movie coming out this week called Hands of Stone, which I'm very excited to see and probably will be a distraction. That's about him? It's about Roberto Duran. Versus the Sugar Sugar Ray Leonard, right? Yeah, uh, the Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, the 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 duo of fights. Yeah, um, no including Moss, the, the No Moss yeah. fight. So Usher plays Sugar Ray Leonard in that movie, um, and Sugar Ray Leonard consulted on the movie. So I'm curious, not to know necessarily what his pastimes are like, but how do you consult on a movie that's about you? What advice do you give to a guy like Usher about this is how you play me? Like, could anyone, I, I guess this is a question for all of us, could any of you be self-aware enough to ask someone how they would portray, to coach someone on how to portray you in a movie? And yeah, I mean, I think if I, was, if I was him, I would, most of my feedback would be like, Usher, pretend you're still cool. <laughs> <laughs> Right? <laughs> I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gareth, who is your hammer? All right. My hammer is, well, you guys work in PR, and I have learned a lot from you about how to deal with athletes on PR. And uh, I couldn't help but watch the Olympics. And <laughs> the dumbest storyline of the end of the Olympics was Ryan Lochte and the American men acting like drunk jackasses. And as my lovely wife pointed out, when he sat down, Lochte sat down for his interview with Matt Lauer, his bleach blonde hair was gone. And she said, hey, kudos to the PR guy that took him aside and said, dude, brown hair. So <laughs> I w- my hammer would be to Ryan Lochte and his PR people only to talk about hair. We don't need to get into drunken bathroom trashing or disgracing your country or insulting another country. I just want to talk about the hair and what went down. So I have a perspective on this. Uh, I have worked with Ryan Lochte. He's the ultimate sort of nuke Lelouch character uh, from uh, Bull Bull Durham, right? Mm -hmm. Where Mm -hmm. like they say like your antics will be colorful if you're winning. And if you screw up, you'll be just, everyone will just turn their back on you so easily. Uh, and yeah, I think, uh, I think we'll, <laughs> we will leave it at that. Yeah, I think we should leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> so, hold back on this podcast, but let's hold back. 
<laughs> Joe, who's your hammer? Speaking of U.S. That, by the way, before we move on, Joe, Go. that was the definition of thinly veiled right there. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm going to throw uh, the hammer down on Michael Phelps, another American swimmer. I don't know if you guys know this. I've seen this video before, but it recently resurfaced. Oh, I saw that video. With um, you know, his retirement and all these gold medals and setting world records. He holds the world record for the longest televised putt. Have you guys seen this video? Oh, no. I thought you were going to say smoking weed. Continue. <laughs> Me too. I was like, cool, yeah. Let's do this. So I wanted to talk to Michael Phelps about uh, his golf game. He, If you haven't seen the video, he made a 160-foot putt at this celebrity golf outing. It's the most amazing thing you'll ever see. It takes like 20 seconds for the ball to get to the hole. And, yeah, I'm just. is that Was that at Lake Tahoe? Was Did he play in that tournament? I'm not sure where it was. Mm. But yeah, Ooh. it's it's pretty amazing. Who on earth would be able to tell you the pro-am that a putt you saw on YouTube was from? Because that's the biggest celebrity pro-am. Aaron <laughs> Rodgers plays Who on earth would year. know that? You don't know that? It's, it happens right after the ESPYs every year. No. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. No. Okay. But now we do. Well, there you go. Uh, all right, my hammer, guys. A team that's been honored at many ESPYs, oh, I'm sure that you've been to, the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. America's team, I, I truly believe that nothing unites America like the U.S. women's team kicking ass in an international competition. Bummer that they went out of the Olympics the way they did. But, hey, they just came off a World Cup win. They've won the Olympics before. I'm not going to give them a hard time. I wanted to bring on a couple members of the team that I think are super interesting to talk to. So Megan Rapino, she's got her own business that started up called Rapino SC. She runs it with her twin sister. And she's labeled as the creative director of it. So I think she does everything from designing apparel to like overall craft the brand strategy. I'd love to talk to her about that. Cool. Becky Sauerbrunn, who I saw last year at BlazerCon. She is super big into reading. Like she's a big reader, loves movies and also country music, Adam. So I figure between that's a big three for us. We got books, we got movies, and we got country music. Like, just come on the show. We'll we'll take care of the rest. We'll, like yeah, we'll pick one co-host. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> co-host, dude. We'd be Joe would drop us immediately for her star power. And then finally, Megan Klingenberg. Uh, she uh, she plays out in the Northwest and is super active on YouTube as a vlogger and has openly says on her Twitter she wants to be the next celebrity chef. She's actually made some cooking videos, like her just like cooking and like cutting it together and put it on YouTube. So definitely invited her on to talk cooking. Cool. I'll talk to anyone on the U.S. women's national team. They're all great. Worked with Alex Morgan a couple times. Yeah. Worked with some of the legends like Abby and Julie Foudy. Love you guys. Get them next time. We'll get them next time. We're still the best in the world. All right, that's sports. We're moving on. If you got someone you want us to talk to, email us justnotsports at gmail.com. Tweet us at justnotsports. Find our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash justnotsports. Follow us on Beam, Joe Reed. Yeah, baby. Did you get Beam set up on your phone yet? No, I did not. But how was that first one that we sent out posting the podcast a few weeks ago? Uh, It's good. Zero likes. Well received. We are still learning the platform. No dislikes, though. No dislikes. No no dislikes. All right. Right now, we're going to take a quick break. Jam-packed show. We have longtime NFL writer Don Banks coming on, talking about his love of card collecting. Then we're going to go right into an interview with Drew McGarry, a fan favorite from Deadspin and GQ, talking about his new book, The Hike. Stick around. 
Joining the show right now is Don Banks. Don is one of the sharpest minds covering the NFL. He is an NFL senior writer with Sports Illustrated, and his Sunday night roundup of the league, Snap Judgments, is one of my favorite national columns and one of the few that spends lots of good time and good column inches talking about the Cincinnati Bengals with actual insightful analysis instead of just Andy Dalton can't win a playoff game. Uh, He's been covering the league since 1990, entering his 27th year with the NFL. But today we're going to bypass all the football talk and discuss a passion close to Don's heart, vintage baseball cards. So Don, thank you for joining the show. How are you tonight? I'm good, guys. Good to be with you. I, I love the, uh, the the very idea of your show because invariably an NFL writer gets stuck in a middle seat next to a guy who talks your ear off about nothing but <laughs> NFL and his favorite team. So this is like the most refreshing topic I can possibly think of for an NFL writer as he stares down another season. That's kind of uh, how we've all experienced things. Don, as you know, we met when I worked in Green Bay. and. Uh, one of the worst experiences in Green Bay was telling someone in a bar <laughs> or at a restaurant what you did for a living because they Absolutely. stopped caring about who you were as a person and wanted to talk to you about why your Michael Finley was dropping balls and <laughs> what they could do to help yeah. fix the problem. So, and Adam, yeah, Adam, you're very sharp on the uptake, so I'm sure that rookie mistake, you telling them what you did was soon rectified and you made the veteran move of telling them you sell insurance and hope they slink away uh, slowly um, from the table because I'm totally with you. I, I I almost never make the mistake of telling people if I'm in a trapped environment, uh, what I do and who I write for. Um, but sometimes they read it on your screen unbelievably when you're sitting next to them on a plane. Oh, wow. And uh, I have learned my lesson. Yeah, I just would tell people that I worked in public relations, and because nobody really knows what that means, that usually ended the conversation. Our former long snapper, Rob Davis, uh, he actually told people that he worked at the local prison. That also usually <laughs> stopped the conversation. So. Very, very inventive. I like that. Uh, uh, also, uh, if you tell him you host Just Not Sports, no one really wants to keep going. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so, Don, I, I want to get into the top, topic of collecting vintage cards. Um, I know for a lot of us, it started with picking up that first pack or started with the stocking stuffer. How did it start for you? You know, it's it's I I'm old. Uh, my first set was a 1970 Topps baseball, which has still got a special place in my heart. And funny, the times were different back then. I I'm not making this up. My father, who's uh, no longer with us, um, <clears throat> smoked cigarettes back then, camels. And I have this distinct memory of him sending me <laughs> when um, I was still seven or eight with a dollar. And a note from him. Imagine this today, signed by him. Uh, my son is allowed to buy cigarettes. H. L. Banks, and then he would give me an extra dollar for making that cigarette run for him to the convenience store on my bike. He'd give me a dollar, and I could buy ten packs of Topps 1970 baseball cards. They were ten cards, ten ten cents a pack. And I have this distinct memory of pulling a Johnny Bench 1970 Topps, which is really his best card ever. Um, and he was my favorite player growing up, as I did in St. Pete, Florida. Uh, the Reds trained right across the bay in Tampa. The Reds made the series in 70. I was a Reds fan for about three decades. And believe it or not, 
believe it or not, the convenience store clerk at that point would sell me cigarettes at the age of seven or eight to take home to my dad based on a note that he had scribbled on some notebook paper. So times have changed indeed, but that's my first memory of baseball cards. Uh, that Johnny Bench card, I, I looked it up, as you said, That's the, and I remember the picture, but it's him with the giant baseball glove, correct? Correct. It looks, yeah, it looks like it's a, much bigger than his head. He's in a crouch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. crouch. Uh, it's a great shot. Tampa Stadium, old Tampa Stadium, um, before they even expanded it for the boxes in the background. Um, I'm a little... I have a, I'm a little obsessive about this card. It's card number 660. Um, it's a pretty expensive card because it was a high series. Um, I have since gotten it, you know, like in PSA 8, which is one of the major grading companies, um, and they grade on 1 to 10. But I still have my original 1970 Johnny Bench tops because I got it in the spring of 74. I got it signed by him in spring training wow. in Tampa and I still have it. It's one of really one of the few things I still have from my childhood collection because of course everyone's mother was mandated to No, my mom did not throw out my <laughs> card collection. I ended up selling it uh myself when I was 17, me and my two junior uh, junior classmates, you know, in my junior year in high school, we wanted to take a trip from St. Pete all the way to Denver to visit some cousins of one of my buddies. Unbelievably, all our parents let us make that drive in the summer of 1979. And to finance it, um, I sold the bulk of my childhood card collection, Whoa. which I have since reacquired in much better condition. You've reacquired the, what do you mean? You've just found well, I mean, I've recollected. Right, I've right. recollected, not the exact copies, right. but I've recollected the 1970 set. Uh, in fact, I have the entire 1970 set in graded condition. Um, you know, they call it slabbed or in in PSA holders. And then I went on and collected the 71 and uh, a number of other sets. So I've got a lot of. I've got a lot from 70 on, but I, I went back and I started in like the late nineties and I started collecting stuff in the, in the sixties and the fifties and the forties, even some stuff earlier than that, even some, uh, you know, turn of the century type stuff. But the bulk of my collection is probably, um, in the sixties and seventies, although, um, have some very expensive stuff that's that's before that and um got into uh, uh Roberto Clemente collecting his stuff because I I still am fascinated by his you know his uh his his story his humanitarian death um he has become a mythic figure in sports to a lot of people uh obviously the most famous Hispanic baseball player. Um, I have gone back and collected Jackie Robinson, uh, Ted Williams, uh, things that will never lose value because they are really kind of iconic um, historic names in baseball. You know, I know Adam looked nervous for a second because every time we hear recollecting memorabilia, he thinks OJ, <laughs> OJ in <laughs> <Lake> Vegas. <laughs> I was thinking more of a heroic story, like the story about Sylvester Stallone selling his dog as he was writing Rocky. And then once the movie went big, he went back and bought the same dog. I was hoping that's what this story was. <laughs> is that true? Is that, is that a, I've heard that too. Is yeah. that true? Uh, I've, wow. I'm going to say it's true. 
I mean, Sly Stallone uh, would never exaggerate for his own, like, myth-making. Uh, I, can't, I can't imagine. Oh. The story Tony Robbins told, it has to be true. It's inspirational. <laughs> Can you help our listeners describe, break down what is PSA and, like, the rating systems that, um, that you use to, to gauge value? It's pretty straightforward. PSA is called, um, wow, Professional um, Sports Authenticators, I think is what it stands for. It's actually out of Newport Beach, California. Um, They've been around since the early to mid-90s. I used to abhor the idea of getting cards graded. I was like, what? No, you know, so I had everything what they call (laughs) raw, which is just a card, you know, as it comes when you buy it. And, um, but at some point in the and grading cards became so standard, it does take the guesswork out of cards because condition is is the whole ball of wax with vintage cards, and you have to have decent condition or good condition if the card is going to have real value. And it may have sentimental value to you, but if you want to kind of look at it like not only is it a collectible, but it's 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 got you know more than sentimental value. It's got intrinsic value. You're going to probably at some point get something graded or buy something that's been graded. And PSA is by far kind of the industry leader. There's another company called SGC. Um, and there's a number of others. There's a, there was once upon a time more than I could list and they all went out of business because the, the business got consolidated. But I would say for the past um, eight years, I've been buying grading, graded material or getting stuff that I own graded. And it's a pretty simple one through 10 scale with 10 being gem mint. Um, a nine is incredibly valuable. An eight is really good and solid depending on the year. A five may be wildly expensive depending on what, what you have. I mean, a, let's say a 1948 Jackie Robinson rookie card, if you have it in a five, You've got something worth, you know, at least $2,000. But um, if you can find it in one of those higher grades, it's almost astronomical how much um, the value is. So, excuse me, you can um, you can kind of collect at the level that, that you can afford with the grading um, system. And I, I get a lot of fives, sixes, sevens, and are very happy with them. Now, in, 19, in the 1970 tops set instance, when I went back and I was like, I'm going to get a copy of every card in this set in graded shape. And I, sh- I, I was trying to get a seven. I got a lot of eights, but I got a lot, I got, I would say 70% of the set I've gotten PSA seven, which is a really good, you know, good solid grade. So, um, it all depends on kind of where you're, your budget is and where your taste level is, but um, I don't get too ridiculous and demand, you know, something like a, a an eight or nine or, ten or a 10. So Don, most of your collection is in baseball cards from what you said. And most of uh, your writing that we've all done of yours is in football. What was it about baseball that drove you in that direction? I mean, football cards, while less popular, granted, have been around since the fifties and forties. What was it about baseball cards that drove you to that sport specifically? Well, I mean, I collected, I collected a little bit of everything when I was a kid, baseball, football, and basketball, because when the season changed, 
you know, the cards changed at the convenience store. But when I went back to collect baseball is baseball is still the one sport that I'm a complete fan of. I, I've never covered it uh, <clears throat> as a beat other than spring training games um, for my first uh, employer, the St. Petersburg times down in Florida where I grew up and spent 15 years um, starting my career. So I never, it never turned into work for me and I'm a big believe or anything you do for work, even if it's the coolest job in the world, like covering the NFL for Sports Illustrated, it turns into work on some level. And so football to me has been work on some level for 27 years. And Adam can relate to this because while everyone thought he had the coolest job in the world, he knew, you know, the NFL, it's great. <laughs> Why do you think we have this podcast? <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> things, you know, you got to get away from. And so baseball has been my escape. Um, and it's been my first true, you know, passion and, and love in terms of right. team sports ever since I was seven, eight years old. So, um, I gravitated towards baseball because it's the sport I most connect with, you know, on that, on that level of, of, of childhood. And, and, and I'm still, a am still an avid Red Sox fan. I still live and die every day with baseball after all these years. So I, I have clung to that for over 45 years. And then recently though, I mean, because I cover the NFL and because I've had such a large part of my career devoted to that, I've, I've gone back and I've started like having more of an appreciation. I've gotten some of the, the cards that I, that really appeal to me, you know, uh, an early Pat Summerall card because of what an iconic figure he became in the sport. Um, a Larry Zonka rookie card because the dolphins were my first favorite team, uh, when I was a kid growing up in Florida. And I, you know, have, I've built a nice little, a sub collection of football cards. I've gotten into Joe Namath cards because, he really was that first crossover pop culture uh, superstar athlete um, coming out Absolutely. of the NFL. And, you know, I so I, I enjoy that. Generally, I don't mess with football cards. I'm like a kid until it's football season. And then I'm like, I kind of get the itch again. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I might go back and, and um, you know, get some cards in the sixties that appeal to me, uh, can be, you know, a Lance Allworth card. I don't know why, but his cards were always the coolest looking cards when I was a kid, the chargers hall of fame, uh, receiver. Um, I, I go back in the fifties. Yeah. Bambi. I might go back in the fifties and get guys when they were players that turned into coaches, a Don Shula card, a Tom Landry card, things like that, that I know is going to have real value. And then to a smaller degree, I did that with the NBA because the year I first remember basketball cards was 1970-71. They always called it that because the season overlapped the years. And they were those big cards. They call them tall boys, but they were bigger than normal cards. And I was a Lou Alcindor fan because um, mm. he was just coming into the league. And I loved Lou Alcindor and then Kareem Abdul-Jabbar after his name change. Um, and I was a Milwaukee Bucks fan for a few years because of Alcindor. So I went back and I kind of collected that, that iconic tall boy 1970-71 set. Um, and it's got Pete Maravich in it. And it's got, uh, which is his rookie card. It's got Alcindor. It's got Chamberlain, Jerry West, Elgin Baylor. So there's small forays I've made into basketball cards, but it's, it's, it's probably 90, probably 90% baseball, uh, 7% football and about 3% basketball. Don, I grew up collecting, um, 
football and basketball cards, probably equally of both. Actually, probably basketball first. They don't seem to have maintained their value, at least like the late 80s, early 90s cards. Uh, I used to buy the price guide, and you would check it and go up to the hobby store and try to exchange with the owner and upgrade for a better card. Has baseball held up better value-wise than other sports in your mind? Better, but the problem, sadly, when you were doing the bulk of your collecting, nothing is really held up in the 80s because of the mass production. And back then, there was this obviously wild frenzy where cards were, uh, values were you know, exorbitant, and they shot up dramatically, and the rookie card craze took over. But all of those companies... Kevin Moss, over- ladies and gentlemen, Kevin, Kevin Moss. Moss. Yeah. <laughs> they overproduced. They overproduce. We all have. I have like I, somewhere. I have a bunch of Eric Davis rookie cards with the Reds, and uh, yeah, I'm not proud of it. But at some point, I thought I was going to send a, a, um, a child to college on my Eric Davis rookie cards. It didn't didn't work out. He was no Kevin Moss, but he was also no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he certainly was no uh, Tony Perez, Johnny Bench, or uh, Joe Morgan. So, um, the. The, the good thing about what I collect is, while being fairly plentiful, it certainly was never mass-produced or overproduced. So really you have to draw – unless you're talking the rare cards, the Michael Jordan cards, you really have to draw a line at about 1970 and and backwards are the stuff that really in good condition holds its value Everything after that, mm-hmm. it's really very few select cards are valuable today. Yeah, and in, in um, the mid-90s, I think I paid $15, my entire allowance, for an Isaiah Ryder hologram <laughs> rookie card. And guess what wow. it's currently valued at? Nothing. <laughs> well, one day. He's got, he's got one last comeback left in him. Uh, Don, I... Let's just say your house is on fire. Let me start like this. If my house is on fire, my family's out, everyone's okay, the thing I'd run back in for is my framed Icky Woods jersey autograph that hangs above my desk <laughs> as Icky Woods <laughs> remains the, the greatest NFL running back in history. <laughs> the Gale Sayers of his time, wow. tragically cut down by knee injuries and uh, not keeping in shape. Uh, <laughs> what would you, If you had the same problem, what would you run in and grab first? I would grab my Clementis. Um, I have a but pretty which, extensive Clemente. But which one? Well, we are serious journalists on the yeah, show. I have to one? hold you. <laughs> I, I hate to admit, I don't have a Clemente rookie. It's just 1955 tops. Um, I'm not admitting anything on your podcast, but I might have bought a copy that I believe to be real and turned into a counterfeit. Um, and I might have, might have paid over $300 for it, but I'm not confirming any of that. <laughs> I'm just saying, hypothetically, it could have happened. Um, but I would probably run in and, and, and try to save my 1956 Clemente, which is only PSA 6, but it's uh, still of great value uh, and, and, and value to me. So I would... I would run and save as many old Clemente's as possible. I, I will say that it, now working in sports and seeing all the ways that it can be disappointing and sleazy um, I, in hindsight. Oh, my first exposure to this was the baseball cards that I collected as a young person. Um, unfortunately, 
With that in mind, I guess one thing I've, like, I say to my wife, like, the essay I've always wanted to write is that collecting baseball cards as a kid informed my future uh, more than just about anything else I did. Um, Is that, do you share that same experience? I mean, it's obviously something you talk about with not, I don't want to say nostalgia, but it's something that lived on its own in your life and then now you're recreating an older collection frankly, with the means of somebody who's not just buying cards for a dollar while getting some cigarettes. You know, like, how did collecting cards as a kid affect what you do now and how you approach not just your profession, but life? It, it's totally connected because um, the card collecting fed my interest and my fandom with baseball. Baseball um became my foundation for being a sports fan and that was football during football season basketball during basketball season and that you know that that fervor that passion for sports at a young age i mean i can remember i told this story on my, on our podcast today um at si.com but my mom asked me what I wanted for my birthday when I was nine. I said, I wanted a subscription to sports illustrated. I got my first sports illustrated in January of 1971. I want to say, and by the time I was 10, maybe 11, I was telling my family members, I was the youngest of four kids, telling my older siblings and my parents that I was going to write for sports illustrated someday. That's what I was going to do. Provided, I couldn't play center field for the Cincinnati Reds. And I went on to do that. And when I was in high school, you know, people asked, what are you going to do? Blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm going to be a sports writer. I'm going to write a sports, sports illustrated someday. So unbelievably, um, cause it doesn't happen much like that anymore. I went on to do it. And, um, but my mom always said, you know, we kind of teased you, when you were a kid, you know, all your cards and you were always organizing them, you were always getting more and you spent so much time with them. And I kind of teased you, really, you want Sports Illustrated, but look what it did. It fed your your eventual career path. And I have, look, I got out of college in 1984 and I worked three years in college for my hometown paper. Since 1981, I have never made any money other than in sports journalism. And that is a direct tie to the fact that I was a sports nut when I was a kid and collected cards. So it's kind of part and parcel of what I chose to do with my life's work. Don, I think about my, my brothers who are a little bit older than me. Um, when I was younger, we'd, we'd go back to my mom's house for the holidays and they would go downstairs and rifle through all their old boxes of, you know, baseball and basketball cards. And, and I wonder what, um, like, how, how often do you go into your archives and and just get a box out yeah. and pour yourself a glass of wine and um, and just kind of reminisce? Uh, you know, are you, are you trading with any of your childhood friends who maybe kept their collections? Are you at trade shows often? How often do you kind of go back through the vault? 
Not often enough. That's a great question. I, I no, I, I don't have anybody that I trade with. Uh, I don't really have anybody that I would consider a childhood friend that I'm still in contact with. Um, I will go on eBay at certain times of the year when the NFL quiets down. Ha! It never quiets down. That was a trick question. Um, and and buy cards that interest me or or shop for, um, you know, maybe like right now I'm I'm kind of working on slowly the 1965 and 1966 tops baseball sets graded. So if I go on eBay one night, I may you know see three or four cards that I don't have of those sets and buy them or bid on them and, and win them on Sunday or whatever. And that's really seasonal right now. I haven't touched my cards in months, um, but I'll get back to it soon. And it's kind of, I drop in on it. I go into <laughs> my wife, you know, knows that I call it. It's my, it's my happy place. And if I need <laughs> to get away from the NFL or if I need to just get away from life, I'll, I'll go there for an hour or two. Um, it may be 10 o'clock at night till midnight and, um, and it may be on a Sunday afternoon between two and four, but yeah, it's a place that I'll go to occasionally, not enough. Um, and just look through them and say, you know, I, I might have a, a mental cue that is set off by like the Johnny bench card, you know, with yeah. the pack of cigarettes story or whatever, but it's, um, it's a place that I'll, I'll go to fairly frequently, um, you know, to, um, to kind of turn back the time and get into your childhood a bit. I was going to say, I can't even imagine the memories that must be tied to some of those cards. Um, I, I also wonder about, you, you mentioned the Joe John, can't imagine the memories because Joe is a millennial yeah, just to fill know, you in on that. Oh, so, yeah, I know yeah. I, I, I have a 25 year old son. <laughs> He was into card collecting for like probably, uh, he was born in 90 and he was into it from about 97. He was a big hero guy. He had hero cards out the yin yang. Um, he probably was into it about, until about 2005. Now gave it all. He gave them all to his younger brother. I have another son who's 18. He stopped collecting about two or three years ago, but I did the same thing. I mean, I, I collected, from about 70 through about 79 and then girls and, and, you know, being a high school junior and senior and college looming, that all took over. And, um, that is the circle of life that we all go through. Absolutely. Yeah. Joe collects Pokemon. Do the music. (laughs) (laughs) Got to catch them all, man. Do you have sort of a white whale? Is there one card, um, that you, that that you lose sleep over at night. Clemente uh, rookie, Clemente rookie tops. Fifty four. It would be, be the that, one. It would be that fifty. Yeah. It would be that fifty five Clemente rookie, and I will get one someday. And it will not be, it will not be better than a PSA three or four because, and I hate to tell you, but I mean, if you get a PSA four Clemente, you're probably dropping three grand, and I just can't bring myself to do that. Yeah. Um. At least. At least sober. So um, <laughs> I will I will get one someday. Um, and I thought I had one, but you know when they say if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And it was. I knew what I was doing. I still bought it on the off chance that somebody didn't understand quite what they had. And then it turned out that it was pretty clearly once I got it a counterfeit and I couldn't get, could not get my money back, even though I didn't try very hard because it kind of 
there were kind of red flashing lights going off all around the description of the card anyway. So um, that's the card that would be my white whale. I will get a Clemente rookie at some point because I feel like I've I've got everything that's fairly meaningful uh, put out um, by him, and I don't have the rookie card, which is a bit of a holy grail. Yeah. Uh, guys, note to self, next time Don is in Chicago, get Don drunk, watch him buy cards online. <laughs> yeah, right. This Kevin or Moss looks really tell undervalued. Him, tell him, uh, tell him cards drunk. That's probably even smarter. Ooh, so, yeah. So that was going to be my last question for you. Will you sell your collection again? I hope not. You know, you never can know life circumstances, but I could see selling some of it. Um, one little side collection I have that has grown a little bit too big. And I, as Adam knows, I've made multiple moves, not in my career, but for my wife's career, we have, we have lived in Boston. We have lived in Madison, Wisconsin. We have lived in the Philadelphia suburbs near Villanova. We now live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm probably going to be moving back to Boston because my wife took a job there three years or three months ago and she's up there now and I'm here. Um, that's a lot of moving in a fairly short period of time. And I didn't even, I didn't even bring in St. Pete to Minneapolis and Minneapolis to the Baltimore area, which I made, um, before I met my wife. So there's been a lot of moves. I have a collection of essentially 95% of every baseball cover that Sports Illustrated has ever published. Um, I think it's neat because I obviously work for Sports Illustrated and I love baseball. So I started collecting many of which I had for my own SI collection, but I started collecting any SI that had baseball on the cover, a baseball player, a baseball owner, a baseball scene, anything. So that now takes up about 14 magazine boxes, if not more, and they're heavy as hell and they're hard to drag <laughs> around the country. So I could see selling that fairly soon. Um, even though it would hurt on some level. And I could see helping you with that via our social channels and taking a cut. <laughs> there you go. I'd be glad. I'd be yeah. glad if you could help me unload that. I mean, yeah, that's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to have to do it kind of with third party and, and somebody saying, you know, this is an entire collection or somebody takes the time to break it all down and sell it piece by piece. Lord knows I don't have that much time. I cover the NFL. Right. Well, Don, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. This was fascinating. Awesome. This is great, guys. Thanks for the time. Joining the show right now is Drew McGarry. Drew has been one of the most colorful members of the media since making a national name for himself a decade ago. You can find him writing about culture for GQ, telling you why your favorite NFL team sucks on Deadspin, or even winning the occasional episode of Chopped on your television set. But Drew also is an accomplished author. His second novel is a fantasy folktale called The Hike, which is now for sale and getting solid reviews all over the place. So today we're going to talk to Drew about his writing style, what it's like to do a book tour, and just what the hell was going on in the new novel, which we really enjoyed, by the way. So Drew, thank you for joining the show. How are you doing today? 
I'm having a beer. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> All right. I want to start with, I, re- I very much read the book as, and I, I've heard you use this description, as sort of an allegory for the loneliness of work travel. I travel all the time for work. It was, it was very much on my mind all the way through. I'm just wondering, as someone who writes a book um, that can be interpreted that way and then has to go out and do a national book tour that just takes you away from the house over and over again to talk about this book about this topic, don't you have yourself to blame for the self-fulfilling prophecy here? Yes, totally. I'm, I'm, in, I'm literally in a hotel room all alone right now. I mean, like it's it, it, in terms of in terms of business trips, a book tour. You you could you can hardly do worse than a book tour because they send you everywhere and they pay your expenses and you go and you read and then people tell you how much they like the book unless they unless they think it sucks and then they don't say anything. But um, you know that's that's not a bad. You know, if you're gonna be away from home, it's it's not the worst way to spend your time. It really is. So I, I, I can't come. Yeah, and I've always been curious about book tours in general. Like, have you, have you ever had a? I mean, you've got a pretty sizable following, so I'm guessing that every stop you you've got a crowd. But have you ever had like a, like a bad or depressing stop on a tour where it's just I've seen them happen before, where an art or an author is just sitting at a table, or or they just get put in a weird location where it doesn't suit what they do. Have you ever had a strange experience that's been shattering or sobering, or has it been pretty good for you? I mean, a lot of it depends on the room. So if it's a really big, spacious room and there's like 30 people in it, well, 30 people's pretty nice. Uh, but it, it can seem it can seem a bit, um, you know, the room can 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 be a little dead. That's okay. I mean, uh, you know, just, I mean, if any one person shows up, I'm usually pretty pretty appreciative. It's, it's it was a little awkward at first because you're reading aloud to people, and like that's unnatural, right? Like reading out loud to someone else. It, that's a that's an annoying thing. Like if someone it has their phone, they're like, oh, look at this. Look at this article, and, and they start reading out loud to you. You're like, give me, just give me the, the phone. I don't want to hear you read the <laughs> thing. I'm not, I'm not five. You know, so I do have to make it, uh, you know, as interesting as possible. Like I like props and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I just lost track of your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was honestly, I was just, I was just, one, I mean, you answered it. I was wondering, like, what it's like to be out on tour and kind of go, oh. not really know what you're walking into, stop, stop by stop. The other thing is that the other thing is a um, there's no rhyme or reason to them. Like when I did my first book, I was like, oh, maybe we'll get to sit on tour, and they're like, no, nah, we don't do that. That was it was a different publisher. And then um, you know, I, I went out on a couple dates. Uh, I had a couple dates for Postmortal, and then a few more for someone to get hurt. But they're always very scattershot. It's not like um, I don't quite know how the process works because, like in theory, it doesn't make any sense to send an author on a book tour. You know, you spend a, th- a couple thousand dollars to send some guy to a city. To sell a hundred books, well, that that doesn't make any sense, right? Right. So hopefully, you get local media sort of you get hopefully you get local media coverage and all that stuff, and it's the equivalent of, the, of like a media buy. But really, you know, like on this on this tour, I'm doing I did New York, D.C., Chapel Hill, Portland, Seattle, and San Fran, and that's it. So and like so, the people were like, well, like people in Chicago, like, would you come to Chicago? And I was like, I just go where I'm told. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> Like they think I, they think I meant it. Like, oh, just just these cities; those are my hot spots. <laughs> okay, so then this is a, this is nothing that we wrote down earlier. That I'm going off script now, but now I'm curious. I mean, I live in New York, and I was reading this book on the subway, and you can. That's sort of a fun thing to do is just look at what other people are reading. Uh, yeah, it's a very public way to read. 
you've gone out there now and you're doing this book tour and you're seeing how people, I'm sure it's on your mind, how are people reading physical books in the country at this point? I mean, do you see people reading them? Have you seen people reading your book? What's the state of literature as a physical medium at this point? I don't think I've I don't think I've ever spotted someone reading my own book in the wild. I don't think that that's ever <laughs> happened. I've had people um, who like know me who said they saw someone like on the subway with uh, like a copy, you know, and then they and then they mm-hmm. tell me, but I haven't seen it, which is discouraging because I wanted to sell a bazillion copies and I want to see it for one hand and all that. Um, but otherwise, you know, I mean, there's a ton of people who still read. You know, it's sort of. It's perfect for, you know, especially air travel, because if if you want to conserve juice on, you know, on your phone or something, you have a book and you read it. And I think, I think books more than any other medium, there's a, there's a very sizable amount of population that has a certain fidelity to dead tree books. I actually don't. Like, I, I like reading on a Kindle. But, you know, there are these people who go on Goodreads and Amazon and, and review a thousand books a year that, that, because they're insane. And so they, they have a certain, loyalty to printed books and you'll mm. still see it i mean there's tons of people still who still read you know paper books on beaches and uh, on airports and all that stuff I, I do love that part of being on a subway and i also recently left a book on the subway and i had 50 <gasps> days to go and i had to go buy the fucking thing again oh, oh, there's, yeah. a, there's some tumblr now that chronicles uh like it's a it's a tumbler thing to say what you're reading and what train you're on. It's really it's really stupid. <laughs> that is that sounds. I don't I don't actually I don't actually give a crap what you're reading because you're just trying to sound learned, busting out the. Oh, I love it. That's a good icebreaker though, especially with the ladies. Were I not married as the father of two? Um, uh, you mentioned something in your last answer that I love. It was you want the book to sell a bazillion copies. Hell yeah. Uh, I, I read I read the post portal and I remember you and I'm I'm paraphrasing but I remember there was an article in Deadspin where I think you basically said I had a kid and I looked around and I was like I need to make some money yeah we started writing these books I I love that and I think that is a beautiful romantic notion is there not an easier way to make a lot of money than writing these science fiction novels <laughs> at this point. I mean, well, I you're taking the tactic, but yeah, I was. Why when I wrote Post Mortal, I had I was I was in between. I had one job that I've been laid off from, and then it was at the beginning of summer. At the end of summer, I knew I had some freelancing work that was going to come up with the NFL season, so I had free time to write, and so. Okay. So I figured I would take a risk and try and do a spec novel and sell it. And it almost didn't yeah. work. It almost backfired on me because it almost didn't sell, but then it did. And so that's that's why I did it then. And then the other thing is that, you know, a book, um, you know, it, it has an echo effect, you know, throughout your professional career. Even if the right. book itself doesn't sell well, you're always author of blank. And yeah. that's a really good chip to have in the writing universe. It's like being – it's like Heisman Trophy winner, you know? Like it's just a good – it's a good thing to have. It's a good experience to have. It and makes you better, and it pays off in other ways down – down the line, so that's why I did it. And then once Post Mortal did well, um, actually, actually, I am now at the point where we're in advance. That's, that's well worth my incentive to write a book. I love your honesty on that, though. To say that um, there is a professional carrot to all this, I mean, 
Yeah, people should. People should do it for money, you know? That, the pursuit right. of money and the pursuit of making something good are not mutually exclusive to me. Right. right. And at the same time, was writing a novel something you had always wanted to do? Because I, I agree with you on the prestige. And I mean, look, I was an English major in college, and there's this essayist and critic in our English department who shall remain nameless. And I saw his student assistant one day photocopying the first page of his still unpublished first novel, and I read the opening line, and it it makes me so sad to just think back on it. And just like, I was like, God, that guy wanted to write a novel so badly, and he can't. He's a great literary critic, but writing a novel is not going to happen for him. I mean, that is a crossing a threshold that a lot of people can't manage. Yeah, and I didn't know if I could do it. I mean, that's one of the reasons the Postmortal is written as a series of blog posts is because it was my, it was a sort of cheat on my end, you know, where it was like, okay, I'm going to write a novel that's not going to be quite in the format of a regular novel, uh, right. because because I can if I if I if I make it as a series of blog posts and it's something I can sort of update every day and it doesn't feel so daunting because I'm I'm still daunted by the idea of writing them, and um, and that worked out a lot better and. Just, just for me, just at least for the, at least so I could get my footing. You know, if you repost Mortal, it actually sort of, um, you know, a lot of the the gimmickry sort of falls away as the novel ends, and it, and that's where I sort of figured out how to do the narrative in a more straight sort of sense, and that's why this, the new book is all straight narrative and it's third person and more classic because I, I wouldn't be able to do it without doing Post Mortal first. But you're right, I don't ever, um, you know, I, I try never to take advantage, you know, take for granted the fact that. That the, the book got published and it has my name on it and it's in stores. That's always a huge. That always gives you a huge heart on. It's 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 really cool. That leads me to a question that I was going to ask about the confidence level you felt following up the postmortal. Uh, clearly, a book that was very well received. Um, did you feel more confident writing fiction this time around, um, or am I over over analyzing that? I mean, it, yes and no because I had started two other second novels and then abandoned them because they weren't. I just got stuck. Right down you know and um like i knew i knew i wanted to write another one and i knew that i since i had written postmortal i knew i i had the ability to do it um but whatever for whatever reason that these two books weren't really coming together and i got stalled and i sent to my agent and he had comments about it and i was like i don't want i don't want to do any of your edits your edits are annoying <laughs> and, and then one day i i had to give a speech for postmortal at some college and i and i took a hike and uh, and I and I was all alone, and I, it was it was very creepy. I was all alone behind some hotel, and I was the only guest in the hotel. And uh, you know, I was going deeper in the woods, and there was like there was nobody around. And this was like the middle of the day, like a perfectly nice day. Like there should have been like bikers and hikers and stuff, but there was there was fucking nobody. And I started to like imagine all this horrible shit. And then I got home and I started writing this one, and then it just sort of sailed. And I don't know why that happens sometimes with certain ideas and why not with others, but it just does. And I don't, I don't really feel like I have much control over it. For all I know, it'll never happen again, but maybe, maybe hopefully it happens a few more times, you know. You mentioned having other novels in, in the works and abandoning those projects. When, when specifically did you know this was one you were going to be able to see all the way through? Um, I think there's sort of a, that's sort of a word count. Like, you know, once I had hit like 40 or 50,000, like then I'm, then I'm past the halfway point on the word count. And I know, I know I'm going to finish it. I know that I'm not going to waste this many words. Right. And, 
you know, and for for whatever reason, things were clicking, and I and I knew so I had a good instinct as to where to go next, and then and then go back and forth, and and I had lost that footing with the other ones. So as long as my confidence level was up, I could just keep pounding away at it, you know. But um, you know, it, it's different for every book because I don't outline. It's it's stupid. You should, but I just can't think of the plot points without writing the uh, the actual prose first. Like somehow it gets revealed to me as I go. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually because on a in a book like this, and just for our listeners, um, you know, it's a story of uh, of a guy in his uh, in his thirties, family man, three kids. He's on a trip uh, in a remote sort of lodge in the woods uh, for work, and he goes into the woods and just kind of gets transported into. Uh, a very strange, very foreign, uh, alternate, you know, universe. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about plot in a second because we have some sp- specific questions. So as you talk about, like, the the process of writing it, like, as I was actually wondering about that because, you know, the character goes through all these sort of, um, you know, uh, Homer-like, uh, you know, Odyssey-like uh, adventures or, or, or challenges, meets all these different characters. I'm fascinated to hear you say that you were kind of... It, the story came to you as you went. Was that frustrating? Was that liberating? Like when you're when you're writing a very you know uh, a very strong narrative arc about you know this guy is going to progress on this one journey. Um, was it intimidating, not knowing exactly where you wanted to take it? No, it's fun because it's sort of like you're reading it. You know, it's sort of like it just sort of opens up. You know, and right. you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that should happen, and that's sort of the fun of it. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's in there, you know, I went back and you know. You know, I had to go back and, and rewrite some of it and, and, and put different stuff in there so that it all cohered and so it so that every everything that everything that happens uh you know next has a reason for happening and relates back to everything else that has happened. Um and that you know, that's a process of rewriting and and editing and all and all that shit. But um no, I it's it, I, I'm the kid who like when like when they told you to outline term papers, I never outlined the fucking term paper. And like the kid did, I was like, "You, you kiss ass, you little shit." Like I just didn't. I it, I was so averse to the format. I just found it so annoying. Like with like subset Roman numerals and all that shit, I hated it. And I just can't. I just can't pull plot points out of the ether. I just can't think of it because I don't. I don't quite know the characters until I sort of start writing. You know what they're going to, what they're saying, what they're doing, and then then it sort of comes. But you know, otherwise I just can't, you know, like I, like I've ton, I've tried to do things where like, I'll write like a dossier of the characters before I get into it. But it just sounds like, it sounds like an ad person's like strategy for like the ideal, like <laughs> super customer. You know? Right. <laughs> well, the Campbell's girl is in her fifties and shops a lot and secretly likes the clash. And, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, it, you don't really know the person until you start writing how they're acting and how they're moving. Right, how is he going to react to being on this path and a crab starting to talk to him on a beach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let that, yeah, throw them in the room together and see what happens. I loved one of the most visceral scenes and grossest, but made perfect sense to me. And we're, I think we can now just sort of start to dive into the book a bit here. Um, is when he has to kill the giant cricket. Yeah. Uh, bug. Because that seemed like such a terrifying suburbanite challenge. 
yes, my it's my life. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I mean, look, you're talking about work travel, and I think that at its heart, this is a novel about family and how you relate to that. Was this also a way to work through some of the... You write about your life a lot. Your last book was a nonfiction book about parenting. Was this a fictional way to deal with some of those same problems, challenges, questions? And I mean, I just... I mean... No, I mean it wasn't one of those things where I'm like, oh, finally I'll purge my fear because I still, I still <laughs> fucking hate them, right? Uh, it was just like, it was just a good, um, it was just a good thing to use. Does that make sense? Like, there's just things in my life where, uh, you know, if I think, I think if it's a cool idea to plug into a story, to make the story interesting, then then I use it. But I try my best. I actually deliberately try to not have motivations behind it. Because I think the strain starts to show, and it becomes it's like an Aaron Sorkin thing where like you know it's it they're teaching you a lesson and the lesson comes first and the story comes second and I I fucking hate that I would much rather I'd much rather just tell the story as straight as possible and then people take stuff away like I you know there was someone who thought the book was about addiction and then there was someone else who thought the book was about um uh about dealing with terminal illness and so and I, I never want to say to those people you're wrong. You know, I almost say, "Oh, that's not what I intended." Because it's cool when people take it and they go their own way with it. Yeah, I was going to ask. You, I was going to ask you, Drew, if you allow yourself to get into debates about the meaning of things, or are you defiant? A lot of creators um, just are like, "Hey, I I don't talk about it. Like, once it's out there, everyone gets their own their, their own interpretation to themselves. But don't yeah. come to my door and yeah, ask that. me to break it down." Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's right. I mean, so long as I do the job of telling the story and and, and bring it to a satisfying resolution, um, then after after that, it's it's up to the reader, you know. And I don't want I want their interpretations to, I, you know, once they read it, the book is theirs and not mine anymore. So I, you know, it was one of the things that always pissed me off about Star Wars, where George Lucas was toying with these old movies, and it's like it's not yours anymore. You know, you gave it to the people. You can't you can't take it back. You can't. You can't re you you can't you can't toy with that sort of relationship with people, and so uh, you know when you know if people have a specific question you know for me about how how the story works like how did what you know what was you know what was X person doing in X spot or something like that that that's fine like a logistical thing I don't mind but if it's like oh you know did the past symbolize you know I don't know the resistance to communist governments or something like that then I that's where I sort of. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm like, just do your thing, man, whatever you want. I, I hate to make comparisons, but I'm only going to make it not from a, what you meant to do, but from how I processed the book. The, exper- the experience of reading it for me was very much like when I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I mean that in a, in a, as a compliment. It's one of my favorite books in that I really liked how a lot of the humanity of the characters emerged through humor. It also speaks to what a lot of people are keying on, which is that the book is, um, even though it's very symbolic, uh, you could you could take it in a lot of different ways. It's still very accessible in terms of how the story unfolds. And I've heard you describe it as it's an entertaining yarn, and and I think you've embraced that. Can you talk a little bit about the style and and like where did you find the balance between injecting it with a sense of mystery and symbolism, but not losing sight of the fact that you, like you said, you wanted to tell a clear story and 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 not lose that momentum for the reader. Well, I had um, I read I read a lot of folk tales when I was a kid. Um, I, I 
I think I told someone that um, there's an old there's a lady named Ruth Manning Sanders, and she would collect all these folk tales from like Eastern Europe and Russia and Africa and shit. And she would put them in these compilations, and she would group them by monsters, so you know, like a book of demons and like a book of devils and stuff like that. And uh, and they went then they went past regular like fairy, all the standard fairy tales that you know, and they they're always sort of these cool little quirky. Sometimes, sometimes you know, hilarious and absurd stories where, like, you know, like a, a candlestick would bounce down the street and run away from its owner, and then it turned out that the, that it was a it was a goblin all along, and the goblin would turn, you know, the candlestick right. would turn into a little creature, and then, you know, the creature was playing a trick on them and stuff like that. And um, I remember for the longest time, just wanting to do something that sort of replicated that, like, I don't know, just I to me there are the, a lot of these classic sort of sturdy story types that don't really get used much anymore. Although mm-hmm. that's maybe that's me because I'm a shit reader. <laughs> and it just seemed to me like it just seemed to me like if you you know, it, it it seemed like a really good sort of sturdy thing to you know, to build my own sort of, you know, uh distinctly voiced novel based on based on like a, a tale that sort of feels very old and what like well worn, you know, like um and has some sort of classical elements in it. Like there's Wizard of Oz in there. There's there's Christmas Carol in there and, and all that stuff. But the fun, the fun part is, is putting a modern dude in it who just says, what the fuck every five minutes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's how, that's how it works. I, mean, I mean, that's why, that's why Hitchhikers is a, is a great book because it's just, you know, it's, it's a few hundred pages of this guy just being like, what the fuck is going on? Because that's how you would act. And, I think fantasy in, and uh, science fiction in general is a lot more relatable when there's a tether to the real world, you know, like, you know, Postmortal is a sci-fi book, but it, it basically takes place, you know, in the earth that you know, right? And I I don't, I, you know, I'm not a great fantasy reader because a lot of times these theories are just sort of sealed off and sort of up their own ass with their own mythology. And I don't really have a way in. I don't have sort of a lifeline to sort of get into it, so... It's always good if there's there's something fantastical, but there's also one sort of grounded thing that allows you to sort of relate to it and connect, and then you go into it too, you know, and you have that feeling of what what the what the fuck is going on. I like that you said that. In fact, in reading the book, I was really surprised in a good way how much you were able to mix sort of very fantastical elements to this universe and also like very relatable. Like one minute I'm picturing sort of a castle scene from the Dark Tower series. The next minute they're pulling up to like a convenience store and I'm I'm sort of like having to almost stop myself and be like, okay, you know, picture picture more modern. Like this this world is has a series of rules. It wasn't like they just got transported to Middle Earth and, and there's a very predictable way to like picture that universe. Each step along along the journey can take a vastly different form. It can play with time and space, with memories and new experiences. How much fun did you right. have creating a universe that is so boundless? And how do you kind of regulate that as an author where you're like, okay, am I violating my own rules or does it really matter? I'm just going to take it wherever <clears throat> I want to go. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of rules I had to abide by. Like there's a path, you can't leave it and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's it's very easy for it to become episodic and you're just sort of throwing random crap at a guy and then, you know, cause, and I, you know, and. So then everything that happens has to be informed by what's happened before and then sort of all get tidied up that, you know, have it all, you know, have the, have the reasons be explained towards the end. Not too much, but have the reasons for everything that he encountered, you know, sort of be explained. And, you know, in terms of, in terms of his personal history and in terms of, you know, 
sort of the universe's horrible plan for him and all that shit. There is some measure of discipline to it, but really, you know, it's to me, it's amazing that you know that the average novel. There's just a lot. Of, I'm a bad fiction reader, and one of the reasons I'm a bad fiction reader is because novels tend to be really up their own ass. Like you can tell, there's a guy <laughs> just trying to win an award, right? Like on every page, you know. And you have this blank page, and you can put literally anything on it. Like you know, I used to do radio ads. I used to have to write the radio ads, and and we were always told again, and again, it's theater of the mind, right? So you don't have any effects budget and you don't have any of that stuff, but you can have someone describing, you know, a, someone filling the the Grand Canyon with whipped cream and then dropping, you know, a planet-sized cherry on top. And that's theater of the mind. You can do anything. So it's a real waste to me if there's a novel just about, like, a family that doesn't get along. Fuck that. I don't <laughs> want to read that shit. <laughs> so to me, it was like if I could make it, you know, just the most – insane possible thing that has no chance of being domable, right? Where you're just pushing out, you know, every every possible sort of last, you know, gasp of your imagination to, to really sort of give the reader their money's worth and, and feel like they've been entertained, then that's what I'm going to do. But my wife has been reading more, and she's been complaining that this woman that's in a book club with her is only picking novels about Manhattanites and their marriages, and yeah, fuck that. I don't care about that. Exactly. She's like, we live in New York. We have jobs. We have kids. I don't need to read about this. Yeah, there was um, someone did that painstaking um, uh, parody version of the New Yorker called the New Yorker, and uh, mm-hmm. and they had a book review in there. It was it was about it was like how novel a book a novel about. New York people living in New York. Like, that was the joke, because they're all about fucking right, New York. Right, right. You know? And yeah, I, I don't I don't, I don't, don't want to read that, ever. I want to read dragons, and I want to read gunfights, and I want to read stuff like that. Whatever I can't experience here and on this planet, I want, that's what I, that's what I want to get at. I think you're an interesting example of somebody who, I don't know, as we get older, one thing that's kind of fun is to watch artists evolve and change and try new things and get better at things. And I I guess I just want to ask while we have the opportunity between you mentioning the GQ reporting, this novel, um, I would say is probably your most mature work at the risk of sounding like a New Yorker (laughs) critic. Um, Where are you looking to go next? What do you want? What do you want to write? I mean, look, one thing I really respect about you and having done in accomplishing this is every professor, I'm sure Bill Simmons has five unfinished manuscripts and screenplays and everyone has these lying around. You've managed to finish them and now you have a career that you can sort of shape. And where are you looking to go with this? I don't know because, um, you know, with the experience of this book, I want to make sure that whatever I do, I mean, I, I would love to write another novel. I just want to make sure that I get it right, you know, and that I don't start a wild goose chase I can't finish. So, you know, I think right now I'm going to rest a little bit, especially with the NFL season coming, because I, I get most of my book writing done in the NFL offseason, because the NFL season is just too fucking crazy. And, you know, the GQ thing, <coughs> I'm never going to quit that job. As long as they'll have me, I'm, gonna, I'm keeping that fucking job. That's a good job. I'm not an idiot. Like, <laughs> that's... 
that's as good as I, as good as I'm going to do. And within the confines of that job, there's there's yeah, there's things I would I would want to try. Like I I've, I've really never done solid investigative journalism, and maybe I should, maybe maybe I won't ever be able to, or maybe that's just not my skill set. But it would be something worth trying, you know. Um, but you know, I'm I I, I am in a, a good spot now where I have the bounce where if I want to write a new piece, I can throw that at dead spin. Um, you know, if I want to do you know, long form feature, then it's, it can go to GQ, uh, political stuff, GQ, and I just have slots. And, and the way that the way that the setup is now is sort of ideal for me. And I'm not really all that keen on changing it. I mean, Peter Thiel and Hulk Hogan will change that for me. Right. You know, I've, I've dallied with, um, like TV writing, and you know, I wrote a I wrote a pilot for someone could get hurt. That I was I was I was actually paid to write it, which was great because Hollywood mm. doesn't pay jack shit for anything usually, unless it's produced. Um, but I've, I, you know, I've been out, you know, in that in that sort of area of writing before, and I know that I don't want to go back. You know, like I know enough to know what I don't want to do. I don't I don't want to sit around in fucking pitch meetings, you know, a zillion times trying to push a TV show that. You know, at its best, in the best case scenario, is on for five episodes and they get canceled. You know, right, right, right. Yeah, Drew. It's just, it's just so much. It's so much wasted fucking energy, and I don't like doing that. <laughs> well, you, you, at this point, you've had the luxury of getting to try a different sort of writing, novels, prose, screenwriting. I mean, you've talked a lot in your own blog writing about. Uh, so feature writing, blog writing, you've talked a lot about copywriting. I mean, if you yeah. found what you like and can get paid to do it, to your earlier point, getting paid is not the worst part of this. So. It's not the worst part. I mean, I think, honestly, like, the thing that I probably should get better at is um, is broadcasting, being on a camera. Um, you know, we had, a, we had a podcast that we put on hiatus because our tech woes weren't. Our tech woes, it just wasn't, it wasn't the product that we wanted it to be. So we happened, we want to go back and refurbish that. And that's something I could get better at, you know, because I think, you know, it, it's it's just it's another skill set to have that's, that's valuable, and I don't mind doing it. And I know I, I know I know that I I might be good at it. I mean, you've seen me. There are limits to my appeal. So, but, um, but you know, like I hosted the Deadspin Awards, and I never hosted an award show before, and that was really cool. Like it went off relatively not disastrously, and I was pretty happy about right. that. So anything else like that, you know, that's a, those are cool new experiences. So I'd love to, I'd love to try that. Writing wise, I think, you know, I, you know, I, I think I'm sort of where where I want to be. And with books, you know, I, I I know that I'm probably not going to do another nonfiction book. I think I'm going to stick with fiction from now on. But I'm only going to do it if I know it's an idea that's sort of sturdy that I want to live with for a while. Like the South Park guys used to say, they were like, if you want to make a movie, make sure you really like that movie because it's going to suck to make it for a year and a half. <laughs> right. Yeah, Drew, I mean, the whole insight behind our show is that, you know, we started this because we would have really interesting conversations with athletes and sports media, like when we're out, out working or, you know, filming or doing whatever we're doing about, you know, whatever they were into, whether it's cars or Game of Thrones or whatever <laughs> shit. And then we'd start talking about, about sports and it would just be like the same old takes and it just boring for everybody involved so i was i was wondering whether you could ever see yourself being interested in writing about sports even like in a fictional context or is it something that you're like i want to get as far away from that as possible with my with this style of writing 
because it allows me a totally different mindset and a totally different experience. No, you mean like a sports novel? Would I write a sports yeah, novel? Yeah, would you go full Lupica on us and give us like a series no. of like Jimmy Jimmy runs on the football team novel? No. No, but you know, the only reason I would the only reason I wouldn't do that is because no one would fucking buy it. You know? Like that would honestly, that's the only that's probably the only reason why I already wrote a sports book and nobody bought it. You know? Sports books are I bought that book, Drew. You know, unless <laughs> unless you're Laura Hill and Brand, it's you know, it's 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 tough. Yeah. And and so, you know, I like sports and I still like writing sports about them. I don't do novels just to get away from sports. Like, there's sports in the hike and there's sports, right. you know, the, you know, there's Buffalo Bills shout outs and the post mortal and stuff like that. It's fun to have that stuff in there. Um, but it's not me deliberately, you know, sort of like, oh, I, I, you know, I'm so sick of sports and I have to get away from it. You mentioned pitching. When you, when you pitch this book, when you come back and, and look, the post mortal dealt with, sci-fi and different sort of different themes that I think exposed a different right. side of you than people were used to from your columns and Deadspin and things like that. But when you decide, when you come back and you're like, Hey, I got this like kind of fantastical folklore tale. Are, are you met with hesitation or are they, are they trusting you now to say, okay, we get it where you want to go. Or are they just like, what's up with this folktale stuff, man? Like, what are you talking about? Well, I was, I was in this position where I had written these, these, I started these two novels, and I gave them to my agent, and he was like, eh, you know, like, you want me to do a lot of stuff to him, and I, I didn't quite know where to go. And then when I started reading The Hike, I said to him, I said, you know what, I'm just going to finish this. And if you like it, you like it, and if you don't, you don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said to him cold, and he was, I said to him cold, and he was like, he's like, I like it, but Jesus, what the fuck is it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> And I was like, it's good, it's good, trust me, trust me. And then I did just a few edits, and Penguin, to their credit, you know, they they had made money on Postmortals, the only book I did that made money. And um, and so they wanted me, they wanted another novel from me, which is, it's that's a cool position to be in. Right. And and so I, I just gave it to them fully formed and cold, without them knowing anything about it. And they really liked it. And so it was really dumb luck, because I think if I had pitched it, Nobody would have fucking bought it. Like he just, I just had, I just had to write the whole thing for me and get the story done. And frankly, that's probably gonna be how I do this from now on. I can't, uh, I can't bother. I can't, I can't try and sell it as an idea. I just have to have confidence that I'm gonna write the, the, the story correctly, and people will will come along with it if I've done my job. Well, hey, it's a great it's a great read. We encourage everyone to go um, check out the book. Uh, I picked it up on iTunes, but you know, hard copies available in bookstores or anywhere that they sell books. We encourage people to read you on Deadspin. the The uh, Why Your Team Sucks series is back. Uh, we Gareth and I are from Southwestern Ohio. We are very much looking forward to your Bengals takedown, and um, to read you on GQ oh, too. And, yeah, right. And to follow you on Twitter. At Drew uh, McGarry. So, uh, Drew, thanks for joining, man. We really appreciate it. And congratulations on the book. It's, uh, it's great. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. See you guys. And we are back. When athletes make music, movies, do hobbies, get on their phones, do anything except watching film, a lot of trolls in the media call them out as being distracted. But all life is is work and the things that distract us from work. So right now, this is the part of the show we talk about the things in life that are distracting us. I'm going to start in our Brooklyn Bureau. Gareth, 
what's distracting you this week? Uh, I'll keep, uh, I've got two things. Number one, and at the risk of being self-serving, uh, I'd like to give you guys credit for some really good distractions. I watched Adam's suggestion of I Am Not Your Guru, the Tony Robbins doc this weekend. I've been watching Casey Neistat videos at Brad's suggestion. Boom. So I just wanted to give you guys, like, I've, I've been paying attention to the show that I'm part <laughs> one of the hosts on, but... I've actually gotten a lot out of this, so thank you guys, first of all. Hey, Gareth, for... real quick. Did you also pick up the West Wing on VHS? <laughs> no, because I was great. in college in the year 2000, so yeah. I didn't need to. Did you have a scoop of butter pecan ice cream? Yeah, <laughs> well, you did that. Were there's original crushed up on the top? Hardy, That you took out of a hammer well, from your know. kitchen drawer that there was in there for some reason? There of this to watch. Maybe I'll knit while I do this. Hey, Butter pecan ice cream, knit, okay. my mom's favorite flavor. No joke. So. <laughs> my dad's too. Um, in honor so of talking to Drew McGarry about his book, I wanted to go with a book this week. And so my distraction right now is Deadwood by Pete Dexter. Um, it is a Western. It takes place in the South Dakota Black Hills town of Deadwood. It was written in 1986. Um, there is a lot of speculation that David Milch took his inspiration for the HBO show from it. Uh, he claims he didn't, but I'm having my doubts. A lot of the characters overlap. Al Swearingen, Buffalo Bill, uh, or Wild Bill Hickok, excuse me. Um, it is incredibly well written. It's very funny at times. Um, and I'm just really enjoying this Western novel a lot more than I expected to. One I just picked up on a whim, and it is exceptional. So if you're looking to stay in the genre world, I would recommend Deadwood by Pete Dexter. Very cool. Very cool. How about Joe? My distraction this week, you said, what's distracting you from work? Uh, This coming weekend, the 26th, 27th, 28th. Oh, I've heard about this. Yeah. September um, of August. I'm sorry. Is a 48 hour film festival that myself and some colleagues are participating in. Um, So that's essentially where you don't have enough editing on your plate. Yeah, I know. I, I don't have enough. I don't have enough podcast stuff to do. Um, so essentially what you do is Friday night, they you draw a genre and a line of dialogue um, and a character name and a prop out of a hat. And then you have 48 hours to write and shoot and edit and deliver a short film. And it is very stressful. And like, it's just so hard to plan for something and you have no idea what you're going to do. But it's also incredibly exciting. And it's been occupying so much of my time um, and just my... Uh, yeah, just I'm just thinking all about it. And so I don't know what I could recommend our audience do. You could partake. They're all over the country. Every city's got one. Um, but maybe just like do a creative project. Like yeah. put 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 some constraints on yourself and like and and do something creative this weekend. Good luck. That's awesome. Yeah. It is super creative and it is I'm sure it's super stressful. It's uh it's just weird planning for something. I was on the phone with the actors today and it's like I can't tell you what you're going to be doing cuz we don't have a script. What do you won't. win if you win? Um, there's like different awards. Um, and then you like, it's you move on to like a more elite competition. You can advance to the next round or you just kind of get like best directing, best acting, best music. Mm. And they screen them at a, a local theater up in, uh, up in Lincoln park. So kind of a cool thing. You'd Which theater? Out, music box theater. Yeah. Music box, Chicago, Illinois. So you can go out and like see your movie and many others in a movie theater, which will be kind of cool. Great. Which I don't think One anybody I- here will have that experience. That's pretty cool. What's up, Gareth? 
Well, one thing I wanted to say is like what I enjoyed about the interview with Drew and a couple of the other interviews we've done recently is that it's really, you know, we're using this quasi sports podcast to dig into the creative process. Mm-hmm. And you just said something about production that I've always found to be true. Whether you have the most tight script or not, the best things that's, you know, to steal a line from Napoleon, eh, just show up and see what happens. So, you know, I I think that, you know, whether that's what you have to tell the actors or not, at a certain point, it's such a collaborative process. You really just have to get there and look each other in the eye and start rolling cameras and see what you get. And I think I've, I've passed the, uh, the point of nerves and now it's sort of towards the point of excitement. So it'll be, it'll be a stressful, but it'll be a fun weekend. So yeah, Brad, what about you? What's, uh, what's your distraction before Adam? How about that? I'm going to recommend a podcast per use. Hmm. The dollop is a hilarious podcast. Uh, two comedians, but the, the, they, I always say about podcasts, you need to have a really kind of solid and clear vision for what you want to do. And you need to have great chemistry. Um, no, and well, the, yeah, I mean, we're working on I... both those you know areas. <laughs> one day, Sparkle Ponies, I feel one like day. A dagger coming. That was the lowest of low-hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So two comedians, uh, they sit in a room. One guy reads the a story, an obscure story from American history uh, to the other. And it is absolutely fantastic. Like they read the weirdest stories and they both are horrified by like the small nuances of life, like a hundred, 200 years ago. I cannot recommend enough. They did. And they even, even in recent times, they did a recent episode where (laughs) it's like a a FedEx plane got hijacked by a guy with a hammer who just like an employee who was going to crash it into like the white house or something. And he just beat his fellow co-pilots with a hammer and it's just like a what? bloody disgusting mess and they're both horrified i cannot recommend it enough anyway Man. the dollop i like it this is a very specific recommendation but i feel the art of the soundtrack is a lost one like when's the last time you heard a really good soundtrack i listened online to the kazam soundtrack today Wait, that's not, that's not an answer to question. We'll talk about that during <laughs> a future our analysis episode. of this movie. Because I, <laughs> anyways, so I saw the movie Suicide Squad, okay, which was as spectacularly average as advertised. <laughs> <laughs> but the soundtrack, on the other hand, was great. So throughout the movie, I was like, "Wait, are these just songs I don't know?" Which is very likely with modern music. Or are these part of the soundtrack? So I got out of the movie and on my walk home, looked up Suicide Squad, the album. On the first two songs alone, Skrillex, Rick Ross, Lil Wayne, Wiz Khalifa. That's just the first two songs. Then we get into Action Bronson, Eminem, a a song used previously, but Eminem on the soundtrack nonetheless. Panic at the Disco, Skylar Gray. I recommend listening to Suicide Squad, the album. Any Le'Veon Bell on there? No, but it is the <laughs> probably the best soundtrack since Boomerang. <laughs> Boomerang is a great movie. And a great soundtrack. <laughs> anyway, those are our distractions. Uh, right now, we're going to end with some quick shout-outs. want to give a shout-out to Drew McGarry for joining us. Uh, super interesting guy. Uh, one of my favorite writers on the internet. 
I love his uh, Why Your Team Sucks series. I'm very much looking forward to the one about the Bengals. Uh, we're going to give a shout out to Don Banks, Donnie Football, uh, joining the show this week. Uh, can't wait to see uh, his writing um, this football season, wherever it, it may be at the time that we're rec- recording this. And uh, anybody else got any shout outs? I'd like to give a shout out to my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and my other cousin Ron. And in the words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty.